Well, I want to welcome you this morning to worship our great God together, whether you're coming to us by the, the live feed or you're able to be with us in person this morning. It's such a great privilege to be able to open God's Word to you. I don't take it for granted. One of the things I've come to realize as I turn 40 this year, and I have uh, a few people around that have liked to remind me of that. I had a few friends and family, my parents and grandmother, are in town to help me think about this this week. A few weeks early, they wanted to go ahead and get their lead in on me uh, for turning 40. So I'm grateful for that and for everyone's kindness to me and the ability to visit with them. But one of the things that I've come to realize is that my days to stand behind a pulpit and to break open the Word of God to you are numbered. And so every single one of them, I counted them up. If I lived to an average lifespan for a male head of household in the United States of America, I counted them up and wrote them down on my desk to know how many sermons I'd likely preach before I met Jesus unless he returns in the meantime. And I'll be honest with you, it's a sobering thing to do. So every time I stand here, I am utterly convinced that we are here to hear from God and not from man. And so the best thing I can do is to get this thing rightly divided into you so that you're hearing not from me, but through me from God because this is what's paramount because he's given us this word. Amen? So if you're joining us there here, that's what we want. That's what we want so badly, is to hear from, from God this morning. It's our, it's our deepest desire, and as our deepest, or it needs to be our deepest desire, and as our deepest desire, then as we're trying to hear from Him, we must be humbled by the fact that He knows better than we do. Amen? Because if we don't take that humble posture to this, we won't get God's blessing. Differently, you don't get blessings from an almighty, magnanimous, amazing God by coming to Him and saying, hey, God, I kind of think you ought to do it this way for me. You come to him humbly expecting for him to have insight and knowledge and understanding that you need desperately in order to live a a life that is is rightly ordered and rightly cared for by God. And and you expect at times as him being a a magnanimous and yet a a majestic and a, a, a corrective God, you expect for him by his word sometimes to reorder your life a little bit. But when we come together, we need to be very careful not to come just expecting God to tell us that everything's okay and we're doing everything just right. When we come together, we need to have great expectation that He is going to shape and steer our lives by His Word in sometimes unexpected ways, but it's going to be for our good and for His glory, and that's how He's going to encourage us. If I knew that you... We're on a one-way ticket to death and destruction. And I actually had the remedy to pull you back from the precipice of death. And I kept it to myself. You would think I was a devilish, evil man, wouldn't you? But yet we have the message that pulls us back from the abyss of assured death and destruction, not just once, but two deaths, and death for all of eternity. We have the message that pulls us back from that abyss. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And should I not share it with you, however prickly it may seem coming out of my mouth, I would be no better than a man that had a cure for your disease that was going to kill you and didn't share it with you, wouldn't I? The gospel of Jesus Christ has not been tried necessarily and rejected in all places. It's that it's never been shared and gotten an up or down vote. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of what we do together here. Be we many or few, the center of what we do is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's His finished work 
for us. As we break open God's Word this morning together, we want to have everything framed by the main point of the Bible, and that is what Jesus has done for us and what that means for how we order our lives and how we bring glory to Him. We are the people of God, are we not? The people of God. So it stands to reason we need to hear from Him. Amen? Not just talk to Him in prayer, which we should do, but hear from Him by word, which we need. And so this is a, a, a clarion call for that. It's a return to that every Sunday. It's a, a, a deposit in, a reminder of the fact that Jesus Christ rose on the third day from the grave. And if you'll only make Him the Lord and Savior of your life, you will know Him not only now, but for all of eternity. And you will know by sight, what we know now by faith. That is that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. Today I want to offer you an invitation into a conversation about covenant. About covenant. In a sentence, the sermon is you should seek to understand the biblical covenant concepts of marriage and membership for the sake of your witness and of your worship and of wonder and of your work. So we're going to talk today about your seeking to understand the biblical concept of covenant, particularly covenant in marriage and covenant in membership. We're going to begin this morning to talk about the covenant of marriage and then midway through the sermon... I will pivot toward the covenant of membership, not just universally in the church, but also locally in the church. And we'll talk about how we get there. I think a little bit of groundwork before we talk about those two points in this sermon is in order. And that is a little groundwork about the concept of the word covenant. It's an out of vogue word, but it's a very important word for our understanding of our relationship with God in Christ. Dictionary.com defines the word covenant as a formal agreement between two or more persons to do or not do some things specified. In the Bible, God makes agreement or covenants with his people. Think about his covenant with Adam, his covenant with Noah, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Moses and with David. Think in Jeremiah 31 of the promised new covenant that would come through the Messiah and this new covenant has come, and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about those who are called through this new covenant receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. So the inheritance is everlasting, resurrected, and glorified life in the presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth, which will be the fullest realization of the promises first made in covenant to Abraham four millennia ago. Many religious teachers have proclaimed many different ways to be restored to God, but the only way to enjoy eternal blessing is through the death of the Son of God. It's the only way. There's only one way to pull us back from death. It's the only message that will save our lives eternally. And so it's through the death of the Son of God on your behalf, His fixing of your sins, His propitiating your sins through His death on the cross, His substitute sacrifice for you. He offered Himself through the Spirit, to the Father, for your forgiveness, Hebrews 9, 14 says. And therefore, He has established covenant with us, for us. That is the new covenant in Christ's blood. It's a new covenant that we, we re-ratify with Him every time we take the Lord's Supper, which we're looking forward to getting back to doing after the, 
the COVID quarantining and the different types of, of sanctioning stops. We want to take the Lord's Supper again. We long to take the Lord's Supper. It's ratified initially through baptism when a believer has united with Christ. It's recognized. The oath-bearing sign of the covenant is recognized when we baptize you and you become, already have become, but you become and have conferred on you membership in the universal church. But that membership is not really recognized universally, right? We understand our membership most readily, not in a universal church, but in a local church context, don't we? And so that's where we use our gifts. That's where we have submission to leaders in the church. It's where we're guided and steered together. It's where we make decisions together. It's how we serve. It's where we push one another along. And so these are concepts of covenant that grow out from what God has done on our behalf. And there's, there's, there's really no other way to rightly explain our relationship with the Lord than in covenant. It's the new covenant instituted in Christ's blood. That's the language that we use each time that we take the, the Lord's Supper, which we talked about uh, in last week's sermon. And the, the idea of, co- of covenant entered into English law early on in the colonies uh, involving sealed contracts. And in church, one of the ways that we express the concept of covenant is we have, most churches do, however much they're used, I don't know, but we have a written church covenant, which later in the church I'll show you, a uh, church covenant that explains what our rights and responsibilities are for one another in membership, covenant membership in the church. So that sort of gives you the introductory and groundwork for the concept of covenant in just language. Explicit biblical terminology for the term covenant as it pertains to marriage, which we'll talk about now in first in this sermon. And secondly, we're talking about the covenant of membership. The covenant of marriage, explicitly in the Bible, marriage is referred to as a covenant in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16. It actually is in reference to a tough situation where there's an adulterous woman that has forgotten the covenant of her God, Proverbs 2, 16. This is most likely referring to the written or oral marriage agreement between the woman and her husband before God, as is suggested in reference to in the book of Malachi when it says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. The Lord witnessed you, was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, is the book of Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. So we see these concepts in Proverbs as well as Malachi 2, 14, where covenant is used to describe marriage and Frankly, there is biblical data to describe breaking covenant and the pain that is caused and the aberration that is before God, both on the part of the man and the woman through divorce. For, as a matter of fact, if you think of Hosea and Gomer, is an illustration in the Bible where the wife is broken fellowship over and over, broken covenant. And in Malachi, it's a redress of the husband saying, God hates divorce and you've per- perpetrated a whole lot of it. You, you, in, in the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this concept as he's debating the different types of Jewish leaders, both the Shammai school and the Hillel school, and he's debating their interpretation of the book of Deuteronomy as it pertains to divorce, and he says, it wasn't this way from the beginning. God didn't set us up to have divorces. You remember how he oversaw the covenant of marriage? He said, as between one and man, you shall become one flesh. One man and woman becomes one flesh, and what God hath joined together, let man not put asunder. You know, you could probably finish that, right? Right out of the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 19, where he defines 
raising children in the context of a household, where he understands singleness to be a rare but beautiful gift among God's people, at times expressed for a lifetime, at times expressed in stages. And so Matthew 19 is the data for, biblical data for talking about that. But suffice to say, the Bible understands marriage as a covenant union that's sealed by God. And we, we, take, we, we ratify the, the, the sign for that marriage is consummation, it's intimacy, that I'll get into no more detail because we have family style in here, but that is, that's what it is. The, the God intends for man and woman to come together and to become not two but one flesh. That's how it's described. It's how Jesus understands it. It's how Genesis describes it. When God himself oversees in that garden temple sanctuary of Eden, the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And it's how Paul understands it. The apostle Paul, responsible for over half of the New Testament. He recites Genesis 2.24 when it comes to the covenant of marriage and says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two shall become one flesh. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 5, which Brother Jonas read already in the service here this morning. we revisit that momentarily, Lord willing. So we want to talk about the covenant of marriage, and we want to do it in 1 Corinthians, and a kind of an odd place to do it, honestly, but bless you. But I want to do it, and I hope you'll understand why as we go. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 17. You can read the whole chapter. It's all relevant to the covenant of marriage. Look at verses 7 through 17. What it says here in this, in this chapter is, I wish that all or as I myself am. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he's single, like Jesus was single, and John the Baptist was single. So singleness is not, it's, it's not a problem, right? It's not a problem to be single. We should love singles, but he's going to enter into then a conversation about the covenant of marriage, even though he himself is, uh, is an apostle, one of the apostles, and is single. And he says, I wish everybody was single like me, but each has his own charisma from God. Charismatic gift, this is a charismatic gift. Believe it or not, that's how that's that's the Greek word charisma, charismata. This is the Greek word or the Greek word for gift. This is each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In other words, some of you are going to stay unmarried, and most of you won't. So let me explain. Verse eight: To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for you to remain single like I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, verse nine, they should marry. There's an oughtness to marrying rather than burning with passion. Verse nine says. You see. So now verse ten. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. You see how this is cutting both ways now, man and woman. They're both, neither of them are supposed to break fellowship or break covenant, to use the term of the day, to break covenant. Now, understand this too. He says in verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So what is he making provision for here? He's making provision for if you find yourself in a marriage where one of or the other is not a believer, he's saying don't. if you can keep make it work, do not divorce that person because they're an unbeliever. He's going to go on to say any children to your union as well as your spouse might be saved if you stay with it. Don't torpedo the marriage because you find yourself in a one flesh union and one of you are not born again, not, not regenerate. And I want to say here too, just a quick word. The Apostle Paul, sometimes it's misunderstood that this is somehow not binding because he says, I, not the Lord. All he's indicating when he uses this apostolic I messaging, he's not, under, he's not undermining the scripture. 
what he's saying is, Jesus actually spoke to this, Jesus, not me. And now I'm actually speaking as his apostle. Jesus didn't say anything about this particular thing, but it's certainly in line with what he said. When he says, I, not the Lord, he's not saying, hey, you don't have to listen to me now because I'm not the Lord. If that were the case, you'd have to disregard half the New Testament. So that's a bad hermeneutic. It's a bad principle of interpretation. So when you're reading this and he says, I, not the Lord, you shouldn't be like, well, I don't have to worry about that. That's just Paul talking. That's not what we're doing here, okay? So just I have to throw that that lesson about how to interpret the Bible in there because we're, we're together trying to guard and defend and proclaim the gospel. And so we, the reputation of Christ is at stake, so we don't want to undermine any jot or tittle of the Scripture. So again, verse 12, To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if, a, if, if any brother, brother in Christ, family member in Christ, covenant of membership, so you see how these are starting to intertwine. That's what I want you to see in this message. So if any brother, member of the church, has a wife, covenant marriage, covenant of marriage, who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay, so we, this particular case study is in a man who believes and a woman who does not. Probably could talk about the other way around, but that's what we're talking about here. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy. I'm sorry, he does talk about the other thing here in verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So then he flips it back around. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, meaning he's not bound. God has called you to peace. Pursue peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, he's using shorthand language. Surely the husband doesn't save the wife, right? Who saves the wife? Right. And surely the wife doesn't save the husband. Who saves the husband? But there is a sense, tertiarily, by which the means of grace are meted out in a marriage by a believing husband or spouse. We live in such a way that witnesses to the gospel, that proclaims the gospel, and the other spouse, if, if not a believer, and the children who have to come to faith get to hear the gospel in the context of relationship. And that's very important, that we understand that calling on our lives to use the influence we have in our homes to teach and share the gospel appropriately, lovingly, gently with our family. It's very important. Even with two believers, it's important to share it with the children in family worship time. It's important to share the gospel. And so that is a, a lesson about the covenant of marriage and how it's even understandable how you could have a believer and an unbeliever. Probably the believer, they, I wouldn't recommend you get married as a believer and an unbeliever, but it's possible that you could find yourself in a marriage because you got saved after you were married, and this would be very applicable there. The covenant of marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant even if one or both spouses are unbelievers. We're going to see how an unbelieving husband and an unbelieving wife could testify by virtue of their marriage, even unknowingly, to the beauty of Christ as the groom and the church as the bride and the marriage that is to come at the end, even if they don't know that that's what they're testifying to. So there is a built-in common grace when a culture, when a society understands marriage as a man and a woman united in one flesh for life. There is a preaching of the gospel that happens unwittingly by unbelievers by virtue of the fact that they acquiesce to what marriage is defined as. You see how this is good for human flourishing. They actually get to see the gospel even if they're not hearing it yet. 
So marriage, rightly covenanted, rightly understood as before God and not just before man, right, rightly understood as, as not a sacrament with the church, not as a contract with the culture, but as more than that, as a covenant before God, with God, that I, this is, if I sin, I'm sinning against you alone first, God, Psalm 51 says. That's the concept of covenant, is your marriage is not your own. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is trying to drive home, I believe. Finally, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So it's not just something he's talking to one church about. It's not just Corinth, it's Galatia, it's Ephesus, and so on. So this covenant of marriage is designed to preach the gospel, but lead the life in which the Lord has assigned you. If he's called you to be single, or if you just haven't found a suitable spouse yet, live faithfully. Don't fornicate, don't commit adultery. Live faithfully until God gets you into a union. It's for an estimated 45% of Americans over the age of 15 in this country are single. It would be a grave mistake for a preacher to stand up and talk about marriage and not acknowledge singleness, whether it's as a stage or as a setting for the rest of life. We must acknowledge it. Jesus and Paul acknowledge it vociferously. They do it, if you read in Matthew 19, you can read his special attention given to singles. And here, Paul as well, I wish you were like me, but most of you aren't, so don't burn with passion, get married. And thus, God redeems that as well. A couple more things about marriage before we move on to the covenant of membership and see the continuity and discontinuity in it and then in the sermon. But a couple more quick things about marriage. Marriage is probably best understood as a temporary institution. Now, I've gone back and forth on this one myself. There's this discussion, will you be married to your spouse when you get to heaven? And I don't think so. Matthew 19 seems to indicate, I'm sorry, Matthew 22 seems to indicate that we will not be given in marriage in heaven. It's a really nice thing to think about if you've had a good marriage. Like, I want to be married when I get to heaven. I see no reason to believe that you won't have a special relationship with your spouse in heaven. And I can't just nail this down and say categorically you won't be married in heaven. But it seems to me, bumper to bumper in the Bible, that marriage here is meant to point toward the marriage between Christ and his church. And whatever he's got for us in heaven is better than the best marriage on earth. That marriage is better. It's better than. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not categorically saying it, but read Matthew 22, and most theologians will say it's pretty strongly indicating that this marriage is meant to point to a greater marriage. And we're going to talk about that greater marriage at the end of the sermon. So I'll just kind of, kind of save that uh, for there. La last thing about, about marriage, I want to provide a couple of resources to you, really three. The, the first one is an, an academic resource that I'm pulling from heavily for this sermon, heavily. And it is by Andreas Kostenberger with David Jones. It's God, Marriage, and Family. If you want to read a, a two or three hundred page treatise on the doctrine of the covenant of marriage and how it interweaves with all this. This is the best that, that I can find. So I want to tell you God, marriage, and family. And I can send you links to this later if, if anybody's interested. A second resource, five years ago, we did a study in this church, six years ago. It was in 2014. And we did a study in this church and we had an accompanying study guide. It was, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage by Paul David Tripp. What did you expect? It was a wonderful study. Um, and, and there's just some great one-liners in here. I thought I'd share one or two with you. Um, it, it's, uh, the things that you face in your marriage are not irrational troubles, but transforming tools of sanctification for God in your life. You know? uh, unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment in marriage. You know? uh, God has ruled the whole process. His 
Grace rescues you from the one thing that you cannot rescue yourself from, you. Reconciling your marriage begins when you began to reconcile with God. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, he says the reconciliation of a marriage must be a lifestyle, not just a response you have when things go bad. Yeah, right. Uh, laziness is rooted in the self-centeredness of sin. We tend to settle for marital detente instead of striving for real love. We tend to settle for kind of a cooling of tensions instead of striving for, for, striving for real love. Um, yeah, so just, I mean, he could, it's, it's a wonderful read for you. Uh, I thought there was one more here that I just had to share. Marriage is the most comprehensive form of shared life that a human being can ever experience. And page 142. So a very helpful book that we, I remember I refer back to it occasionally. Finally, I want to give you some, something to look forward to. Our bookstall director, Nicole Doty, has helped us secure these books through, together through the storms by Jeff and Sarah Walton. And sometime in the next year, we'll establish a study. It's biblical encouragement for your marriage when life hurts. So sometime this year, we'll probably do this. It's a journaling hardback book. Uh, together through the storm. So you might kind of flag that and consider signing up for that when we offer it. It's a really neat book, and it, it's very practical about the things that you go through in marriage that are, that are not, they're not wedding day stuff. It's, it's the depth of the suffering of marriage. Hope when you suffer loss in your marriage. Loving your spouse through chronic illness. Learning to lead and follow. When people bring judgment instead of comfort. Waiting well when God seems silent. The strange gift of lament. Walking in the Valley of Despair, they, they suffered secondary infertility and they suffered loss of a child. So they had some very big things in the first 15 years of their marriage they talk about very openly. Suffering and intimacy, uh, longing for kids, struggling with kids, not having kids. Why did this happen to our family? Prayers for prodigal children and so on. So an interesting book. And you could, you could buy this at the bookstall. I forget what we have to have out of it, maybe $15. You could get it at the bookstall anyway today. I'm sure Nicole would help you, but it's a, it's a study that we're going to do, I believe, and I think it will encourage you. We perennially have to encourage marriages in the church because it's too big of an issue. It's too big of, a, of an importance for us to not perennially uh, cover that. So I want to share those resources with you. Now, I want, to, I want to pivot just a little bit from the covenant of marriage to talk about the covenant of membership, the covenant of membership. Flip back just a page in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to come at membership in the covenant kind of from the, the back door. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So just pause for a second. He's going to address the church, the Apostle Paul, about something that's been reported to him. And the very, what's supposed to be the glue, the oath-bearing sign of the covenant of marriage, is how he leads into talking about the covenant with the church in membership. He immediately talks about sexual immorality, which is a catch-all word for pornography, for adultery, for fornication, for homosexuality, for bestiality, for incest. It's a catch-all term for all of it. And it would include anything that is, is not a one flesh union between man and woman. In this case, it's incest, at least by marriage. So listen to what happens. It's actually reported at the church at Corinth, there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated amongst the pagans here at Corinth. For a man has his father's wife. Are you so full of yourself, people? Are you arrogant? Serious. Shouldn't you rather mourn? Let him who's done this be taken out, removed from among you. Now, just stop after verse 2 and say, what does that mean? Does that mean like we're going to get a, the strongest men in the church? You know, I'm going to include Bobby in that. He's a great big guy. Maybe grab Matt from the back, and, and I don't know. And we're just going to take that guy, and we're just going to haul him out. Is that what that means? I mean, surely he's not calling us to beat the guy up, right? I think instead, in shorthand, what he means is, and I think the text bears this out, 
He means remove him from your membership role. Remove him from among your membership. Remove him from among. I don't think in any way he's saying don't call him back to repent. I don't think he's saying don't continue to share the gospel with him. He's, I think what he's saying is your relationship with that person that continues in sexual immorality, as far as the covenant of membership goes, has to be different. You must excommunion that person because that person is tarnishing the witness of Christ. You preach to them by saying, uh-uh. Like there's those times you have to use that card with your children too. No. Not in this family. No. This is the card that is, is to be used by the membership of the church. We, we cannot make anybody act in any certain way, but we can rest assured that we can say that action that you persist in is not commensurate with your covenant with this church. And, and that is what I believe is going on here. It's not throwing him out physically. It's throwing him out in terms of his membership. And he says, though I'm absent in the body, verse 3, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, when you're gathered together, which is a strong push for assembling. We can't wait to get that all back together again. All assembled. When we assemble, in the name of the Lord Jesus, which we always do, and my spirit is present, and the power of the Lord Jesus is there, you're delivered this man to Satan, which is to put him outside of the church for the destruction of his flesh. Why? Just to, be, just to punish him? No. So that, the purpose is, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, before I read anymore, I'm going to read the rest of this chapter and make my point. Before I read more, I just want to say, there is clearly a membership that you can be into and a membership you can be put out of. Isn't that basically obvious here? Like, how do you remove somebody from a membership that you can't be in on? Now, what I think is inferred here is that we have a, a formal agreement, whether it's written down on a piece of paper or we just know and we've talked about it, a formal agreement that this is the 80 people on the church membership role at the local church at, at Antioch or at Corinth or at Ephesus, or in this local church, here's the 80 people on the roll. And you go through that roll, and John Smith is the one that's doing this, and we now have 79 members because John Smith wouldn't repent of his sin and stop doing all that nonsense. And we're not going to let the world think that this is how the first church of Ephesus operates. John Smith can come back on the roll of a church and take communion when John Smith repents of sleeping with his father's wife. You see? That's what's going on. And he said, I can't believe a church would ever do anything like that. Well, maybe you haven't read the Bible. That's how the church is supposed to operate. You say, well, nobody would come to the church. Nobody's coming to the churches anyway. I mean, seriously, if you just want to talk about pragmatics, if you just, just pragmatics, I actually think it would be more practical. It may not be, but I actually think it would be more practical. I think people would think that we actually believe this stuff if we practiced what we preached. I really believe that. So I actually think when we do that, we're actually loving John Smith by having 79 members and leaning into him and saying, listen, some of us are thick. Some of us just don't get it right away. And we lean in him and we say, no. He says, you can't. He flails and everything and then he thinks about it. And he's kind of like Hosea in Hosea chapter 2, verse 7. Read this sometime this week. He comes back to it later. Gomer comes back later. And she says, you know, I had it better at home. It was better when I was in that covenant than out here. I wonder if I could go back home. If you don't put them out, they can't come back in. And you start to see how the covenants start kind of share some things in common. There's some discontinuity too, but kind of share some things in common. And so let me just finish this so you get the whole warp and weave of it. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, newness of the new covenant type stuff. For Christ, our Passover lamb, our Paschal lamb has been sacrificed 
all about the gospel. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Straightforward truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world, not even talking about the people outside of membership. No way. That's not what he's talking about. I'm saying don't associate in the same way with the people that claim to be of Christ and yet continue to be sexually immoral. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy of swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one, perhaps meaning the Lord's Supper, or certainly not to just eat casually, but to always be leaning into them. You need to come back to the faith. You need to stop sinning. How can we help you? Have you talked to an elder lately? And finally, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? The apostle Paul writes to the church as a model. What have I got to do with that? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And so what do you mean to judge inside the church? Well, in the most severe cases, we have to say that person took the covenant and that person is not abiding and keeping with the covenant. And in the most severe cases, that's what we must say. So we've talked about the covenant of marriage. Now we are talking about the covenant of membership. And we're understanding from this text that Christ's sacrifice as the ultimate Passover lamb has ushered in a new covenant with rights and responsibilities so that gospel proclamation is part of, how, of what it means for us to take the bread of the Lord's Supper in sincerity and truth instead of with malice and evil. And so when we eat the Lord's Supper, we're making a statement about inside and outside of church membership, and we're recommitting to keeping covenant with one another in the Lord. Now, assuredly, we are, in its most bare sense, covenanted with the universal church everywhere. Right, And so that's what, what many people say is, well, I'm, I'm a member of God's church and I don't want to be a member of yours. I think that's a gross misunderstanding of the biblical data. Just, just for one example, I could go so many ways with this. Expression of gifts and how, how do elders know who they're eldering over. It's not just like a zip code. And I could go through all that. But one thing in particular, I believe, is just read your Bible and notice that the letters are written to particular local churches. It's, it's not just amorphously written to the church. There's 113 times the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for, that's translated church into your English Bible, is used. 104 times scholars think it's used in reference not to the universal church, but to the church local. So there's stuff that's supposed to happen right in the local. I mean, it's, it's, it might be a small deal to the eyes of man. It's a big deal to God what we do right here. It's big, if, that's, if I'm reading the Bible rightly. It's a big deal to God. So these things matter. And I'm not talking about walking around all chippy about, well, I'm going to do this. No. Loving one another enough that when somebody's got his father's wife, that's not just going to go. Right? It's important. It's important. And, and, you, and you look at me like, well, I, don't, I can't believe any church in America would let that go. You, <laughs> pump the brakes. There is some wildly wildly unbiblical stuff going on in groups of people claiming to be churches in America today. Wildly unbiblical. This is not out of the realm of possibility. May we not be counted in that number. May we not. May we be faithful. And I believe God will bless this membership. I believe he will, don't you? Let's do God's bidding God's way. Adoniram Judson spent eight years in Burma, modern-day Myanmar, before he had his first convert. And the church in Burma owes its existence largely to God's work through Adoniram Judson.
Now, we've talked about the covenant of marriage. We've talked about the covenant of membership. I want to share something with you about the way that the, the covenant of the church reads. Uh, I think we can actually put this on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, this is our church covenant. You can see it. I don't think you can see it well enough to read it. But it says, Having been empowered by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and on the profession of faith, having been baptized, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one local body of Christ. We will, by God's grace, walk together in Christian love, giving and receiving admonition and meekness and affection, remembering each other in prayer, aiding each other in sickness and distress, cultivating Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy of speech, being slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. We will, with the Holy Spirit's power, seek to maintain family and personal devotions, to educate our children in the Christian faith, to seek the salvation of our extended family and acquaintances, to walk wisely in the world and to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements and exemplary in our deportment to see God's help in abstaining from all practices which bring harm to this local body or jeopardize our own or one another's faith. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelistic, evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship. That's what we're doing today. Its ordinances, which is baptism, the Lord's Supper. Its discipline, which we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. And its doctrines, which we're hopefully preaching today. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry. We'll give the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel to all nations. We moreover agree, we moreover agree that when we leave this church, we will as soon as possible unite with another church where we can carry out the spirit of his covenant and the principles of God's word. So when we leave the church, we won't just orphan ourselves. We will join another local church wherever we go. Now, that's a covenant we make on the front end for seeing that many of you will not live in one place your entire life. Some of you will, but some of you will not. And so we want to foresee that being a member of a local church is very important. Now, we've talked about the covenant of marriage and of membership. I want to try to talk to you about the way that they're similar and different. And I think the best way to do that is to read a quote from that book by Kostenberger I said earlier on God, marriage, and family, and then to read a section from Ephesians 5 and then end the sermon. I think that will help you see the way that we see them together and yet see them as different all at the same time. Because Jesus taught about marriage and family. He noted that there will be no marriage in heaven, Matthew twenty two thirty, 30, and explained that some even in this age will choose to remain unmarried for the sake of the kingdom, Matthew nineteen twelve, as said earlier. Taken together with Paul's discussion of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, which we read, this shares an important end times light on the question of marriage and family in the church. It shows that marriage, while divinely instituted from the beginning and continuing to be in effect until final consummation, is part of the present form of the world, which is passing away, 1 Corinthians 7.31. God's kingdom, on the other hand, endures forever, Revelation 11, Revelation 22. Paul likewise said in Ephesians 5, things about the household, and directed his commands to Christian husbands, wives, and children, calling on husbands to live for their wives sacrificially and to nurture her spiritually, on children to obey their parents and to honor them, and on fathers to train and instruct their children in the Lord. And we're going to try to help you dads with that this fall. We have some plans to try to help you lead your home well in spiritual things. But to do that, instead of exasperating your children or treating them harshly. And so, we are to have work relationships affected by the way that our homes, our covenant home and our covenant at church functions. And so there are instructions about servants in the workplace mentioned in Ephesians 6 as well. So the household continues to be a central unit in the New Testament, in the Bible, 
and in the New Testament era, and proper allowance was made for those households where one of the members or spouses may not have been a Christian. Remember, we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So the role of the church is the pillar of truth, the, the worship of God, and the administration of the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. The role of marriage and family is to care for the well-being of the members in the home. Procreation, although we also ought to have concern for those that are in, have infertility and those that have hopes for adoption and the stoppage of every heinous abortion, every single abortion in this country because procreation is part of what families are to be about. We are to propagate it in our home in that covenant union. And influence of family toward the gospel is a, is a third thing that families and marriages should be about in that covenant. So procreation, not destruction of children, welcoming of children, well-being of the members within the household, taking care of their mind, body, soul, strength, and sharing the gospel and doing family worship time with them. That's the role of the family. So continuity and discontinuity. This is what Kostenberger says, and I think he's on to something. The family of God is not a family of nuclear families, but a gathering or body of true regenerate believers, born-again believers, organized in a given location, in a local congregation, under duly constituted leadership, regardless of their family status. So we can welcome in refugees and singles. You don't have to be a, a, a husband or a wife in order to be in the local church. So there's concern for the single, the person that's not from here, the traveler, the down and outer, the addiction recoverer, the little bitty ones, the eldest ones, the ones that are in nursing homes. And there's a thousand little things we do to submit and to lead and to express our gifts and to speed or slow one another up or down in ministry and mission and faithfulness and to grow. And I just don't think we're capable of that by ourselves. I just don't. I think the Lord Jesus knows better than we do that we're meant to be tethered together in this covenant of membership. And I think the Lord Jesus knows better than we do that as we lean into this together, openness to one another in the nitty-gritty of life and in this, because of this covenant we have together in Christ's blood will bring joy and growth to our work and our worship. And it will bring unity and a certain maturity to the congregation as we press into the seriousness of the word and not just the sentimentality of the word. As we press into the seriousness of sharing the gospel and not just the sentimentality of making people feel a little bit better on the road to hell. The bottom line is the gospel cuts really, really deep. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And if it's not strong enough to convict, then the gospel's not strong enough to save. The question is this morning, do you believe the gospel? And believe it in such a way that it affects how you order your life. Because you should not be living life the same way on year 10 of having been a Christian as you were on day one of having become a Christian. It should affect the way you order, especially your most close and personal of relationships. So how do you apply this? I just want to tell you, really, today, you know better than I do. You know better than I do. You know your situation. I don't need to put the cookies on the bottom shelf here. You know what I've talked about with these covenants. What do you need to do? Man, woman, child, elderly, married, single, what do you need to do? And how can I help? I'm not, I'm not here to put an anvil on your neck. How do I help you? I want you to swim. I don't want you to sink. How do I help? How do I help you live up to the baseline of what God's called you to in testifying for him? Ephesians 5, I'm not gonna read it again, actually. We're, we're running low on time. You can read Ephesians 5. It talks about Christ and the church as the bride and the groom, as a groom and the bride. And then it talks about marriage and it just weaves all these things together. Jonas read it earlier. It's discontinuity and discontinuity, but it's also important. What I wanna do is end, I wanna end with a, a, a quote 
um, from uh, a dear brother. He wrote this. If I can find it here. It's my stack. Oh, it's back here. This is so good, and I think it'll encourage you. Uh, I said I would read it to you. I'll be lying to you. My eyes aren't as good as they used to be. There it is. So this is, this is really helpful. And it's actually an article written to people that are broken and then trying to follow Christ. It's how much do I need to know about my potential spouse's past? And this is this, this, is this pastor's response. Here's what he writes at the end. He says, um, if your future husband is repentant, and if your future husband is forgiven, in this case the husband had apparently done things that he shouldn't have done that could be reversed, and yet you are tortured by the thoughts of his past, then the issue for you is one of personal pride and refusal to see oneself as a gospel-forgiven sinner too. The issue for you with your future husband is discerning whether there are ongoing patterns, whether he agrees with God about the severity of his sin, and whether he has been cleansed from it by Golgotha Hill blood, Jesus' shed blood, and the power of the resurrection at the garden tomb. This is what he concludes with, and this is how I want to end my sermon today. Jesus was a virgin, his bride wasn't, and he loved us anyway. Jesus was a virgin, his bride wasn't, and he loved us anyway. Who's our hope? It's not in all of our purity, is it? Jesus was. We have not been as his church. We're the Gomer. Christ is the Hosea in the biblical metaphor. And he has loved us anyway. That's where we get the power to live out our faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us the gospel through marriage. Thank you for showing us the gospel through marriage, even when we hadn't believed it. Thank you for pursuing us for salvation, even when we hadn't been pure toward it. Thank you for showing us your love for us in the cross and inviting us to be one in you for pursuing us, as we'll sing in a moment, as your holy bride. And thank you for inviting us to the wonderful marriage feast that will come at the end of time as the bride of Christ, your believers. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.